From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We're all familiar with the Harvey Weinstein story, but this is the story of how the New York Times got it. Jody Cantor wrote the story with Megan Toohey, and Jody joins us now. I have to say, and I was telling Colleen this before we went on, that the story about finding the story is almost better than the story. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was, when you started, when you heard these first charges, did you believe them? Or was it so outrageous that you thought, no, this can't be real? You know, what we do in the book is that we try to take you behind the scenes of the investigation. We want you present with us there, um, you know, during those very first phone calls all the way up until the final confrontations with Harvey Weinstein. And that's in part because this story ended up having such staggering impact and I think sort of meaning so much to all of us. But to your question, you know, at the beginning, we didn't really come in with any assumptions whatsoever. We thought, hmm, there are rumors about Harvey Weinstein. We really don't know. And my first phone call was with Rose McGowan, the actress. Um, she initially didn't want to talk to me. Uh, she said the New York Times was sexist, and I had to, I had to sort of find a way to convince her to open up a little bit. And when she told me her story, it was very disturbing, but there were big questions. You know, can we verify this? Is there enough evidence to be able to put this into the paper? And also, are there more stories like this one? And at that point, we did not know. And how did you go about finding those other stories to corroborate what Rose McGowan was telling you? Well, it was challenging because I'm not an entertainment reporter, and Megan, my partner, and I, we didn't know any actresses. So we sat around the office for a certain period saying, how would you get Gwyneth Paltrow's phone number? How would you get Uma Thurman's phone number? And remember, we couldn't go through agents or publicists because these were very private stories. And we also had to figure out, even if you get one of these women on the phone, what do you say to them in the first 45 seconds of a phone call to actually get them to trust you? When you um, got into the story, you began to realize that Harvey Weinstein uh, knew that he had screwed up and was going to great lengths to try to compromise the women who had accused him and even was going to go after reporters. And at one point, he hires a, a company or a group called Black Cube. Can you tell us about that and uh, what they do? Sure. So, so okay, in my line of work, it is not that unusual for private investigators to be digging into reporters and sometimes even to sources. It's sort of unsavory, but there's nothing illegal about it. What happened here is something much more manipulative, which is that Weinstein hired this set of essentially private Israeli ex-military spies to try to dupe us, both reporters and sources, and extract information about us. And they actually took out a contract on us. There was, there was an actual Black Cube contract, which we now have, that says that if our article was not published, Weinstein would pay these operatives hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. How did you know that, that they were trying to dupe you? Did, I mean, you're a reporter, so you, <laughs> you know these things, well, but explain so, it to people who don't uh, understand uh, that. Uh, 
also, I'll be honest with you, at the time, I did not know what was happening. I was very worried. I wasn't worried about myself. Confronting the powerful is what we do for a living. Uh, that's why we get up in the morning. But I was very worried for our sources because in some cases, these were very vulnerable women. They weren't all big movie stars. Some of them had, were former Weinstein assistants whose names had essentially been erased. Uh, and we found out afterwards, it was actually Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker who, who first revealed it. And we've since come to understand what much more about what really happened. But I still have the email that the Black Cube operative sent to me. And, and here's the craziest thing. She was in the email. She was pretending to be a women's rights advocate. Mm-hmm. And that was all to just put you off the trail? It was to try. She wanted me to have coffee with her, um, and she she was she was basically trying to dangle money in front of me. She oh. was saying, "Oh, we're doing this big sort of corporate feminism conference in London, and we want you involved." And there was sort of the implication of a big speaking fee, uh, but I, I brushed her off. I was essentially saved by two things. The first thing is that the Times has really strict ethics rules, and I can't take tens of thousands of dollars from some stranger, uh, especially connected to a business. And then the second thing is, I was too busy. I was too busy. We we had the responsibility of executing the Weinstein story. My partner, Megan, and I also have very young kids at home. And we, you know, we wanted to get the story and get the kids to bed. (laughs) I feel you there. So the night before this story publishes, what's going through your brain? What's going through your heart? What's going through your stomach? I I can't imagine how nerve wracking this might be. It was the responsibility. It, it, it was, we knew that nobody had gotten this story. And, and at that point, we also understood that we were dealing with 25 years of allegations. And the, there's a kind of moral crisis to the Weinstein story. And part of it is how could this kind of alleged behavior have gone unchecked? for so long. How could so many people have helped Harvey Weinstein instead of the women? And we knew that we were on the cusp of finally being able to expose him, and we were just so worried that something would go wrong. Well, no better person to tell us than you. How did he get away with it for 25 years? So a lot of our book, so yes, part of our book takes you behind the scenes of the investigation, but we also devoted an additional year of reporting to figuring out who helped Harvey Weinstein and why, and what can the rest of us learn about it, learn from this, because uh, this is a lesson in all of our workplaces. If you if you see somebody doing something wrong, if you hear even rumors of wrongdoing, are you going to act? Are you not? And Essentially, the web ranges from high-powered lawyers, including Lisa Bloom, a famous feminist attorney, David Boyes, who's one of the most esteemed attorneys in the United States, and then there were people who just looked the other way. Bob Weinstein, who is Harvey Weinstein's brother and the co-founder of these film companies, gave a series of interviews to my partner, Megan, and Megan was also able to obtain a letter of his where he basically described why he... He confronted his brother, but he he acted like the problem was sex addiction. And, uh, you know, there's even a quote in the book where he says at one point, I surrender. He, um, he, um, he, he failed to confront the problem properly. Well, Weissin himself and, was saying things like, uh, I have to learn that the way I behave is sometimes taken the wrong way by mm-hmm. women. When in the descriptions of these things, and I, I frankly don't remember reading the descriptions in this kind of detail before until seeing your book, how could he not know that he was forcing himself on these women? Well, 
I can't answer on his behalf, but what I can tell you is that these allegations were made again and again. In the book, we describe the kind of patient zero of the Weinstein investigation, and this was an assistant who worked in his office in 1990 and ended up with a settlement. She was essentially paid to be silent. So this goes back a long, long time. Think of how many women have made allegations since 1990. So he was paying them off for a long time. His brother was trying to stop it. He was hiring these these detectives, these black ops people to try and go after you. He knew. Yeah. He knew something was wrong here, right? He appears to have, especially because the lengths he went to in order to cover up these allegations are very extensive. I mean, we, we, were, able, we were able to document in the first story that he paid between eight to ten secret settlements, essentially hush money to women to keep them silent. Yeah, but these women also had lawyers who, who went along with this. You, you point out Lisa Bloom. You also point out her mom, Gloria Allred, who has this reputation as a feminist. You make it sound like uh, women like this were actually complicit because they advised the accusers to take these settlements and shut up about it. Well, okay, so let's talk about the issue of secret settlements for sexual abuse because this is a, this is, this is something we all need to think about because these agreements are still being signed every day across the United States. Believe it or not, this is sort of our country's standard way of dealing with sexual harassment, sexual assault allegations often, which is that a woman who's faced something terrible will go to an attorney and she's expecting, you know, the, the law to somehow make it right. And what the attorney will often say to her is, your best option is a secret settlement. You can take money, but it's money for silence. You can never tell anybody about this again. So when you're in that situation individually, it can seem like the best thing to do because you get to keep your privacy, you get to move on, et cetera, et cetera. But what we've now been able to see collectively, not just with the Weinstein story, but the Bill O'Reilly story, the Larry Nasser story, is that these settlements have a tendency to enable abuse because the men can just pay the women to be silent and then they can go on to potentially hurt somebody again. And so I think we're having now a kind of reckoning over the work that Gloria Allred and many, many, many other attorneys do. And I think the question is, is this really the best we can do in terms of addressing this problem in this country? What do you think has changed since this reckoning began with your reporting? You know, what's so confounding is that everything has changed and nothing has changed. On the one hand, there was this mass firing of people like Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and Mario Batali, and we've never really seen that kind of accountability before. Uh, Lots of corporations are taking this much more seriously. I think there's a recognition that even lower-level behaviors, like a lot of things that happen in high school, like bra snapping or patting girls' butts as they walk down the hallway, is not okay and, in fact, sort of deserves um, stronger words like uh, like harassment. Um, however, when we look at our laws and our structures and our systems, they haven't really changed. It's still really hard to report a claim like this, especially for low-income workers, for a waitress who's getting groped by her boss as she, you know, waits tables for 10 bucks an hour. It's hard to say that anything has really changed for that woman. That's right. I mean, The Times was attracted to this because it was Harvey Weinstein, right, or because it was Brett Kavanaugh. So what about the no-name boss who does this on a regular basis? Whose responsibility is it to expose that? Well, I should say just 
I want to make it clear that this was a team effort across the times and that we, the paper has done so many stories about restaurant workers and cheerleaders and even female prison guards who are subject to terrible abuse. So I don't think it's fair to say that the Times is only interested in the big names. But what I think is fair to say is that journalism can't fix the whole problem. We are working as hard as we can to kind of document and expose these kinds of allegations. But I think it's going to take a sort of it's almost like the old rules on sex and power have been swept away, but nobody knows what the new ones are, and it's not clear what the process is going to be for deciding those. So I think it's we will continue to shine a light and help people to see the problem, but I think it's going to take more than journalists to actually fix it. I want to ask you about the title of the book before we wrap up here, because it's called She Said, You Deliberately Left Out the He Said. So explain the reason behind that. Well, thank you for asking that. I mean, the book is really about not only the power of listening to women's voices, but the complexity of it, because the she's in the book are so diverse, and the ways in which the women speak out and don't speak out are so diverse. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow is in the book, and she, surprising to many people, she was actually a key source on the Weinstein investigation, but she had a lot of trouble going on the record for the first story. So that's a certain kind of she said. The book describes the behind-the-scenes story of Christine Blasey Ford's testimony last summer. It's the first account she's given of what it was really like to give that testimony and what led her there. So that's a different kind of she said. And then there's a woman named Rowena Chu who is coming forward about Weinstein in this book for the first time. She kept her silence for 20 years. She didn't even tell her husband. So that's a different kind of she said as well. What are your thoughts uh, since you brought up Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh of the new allegations against Kavanaugh and the calls to impeach him? Well, you know, that book only comes out tomorrow. It's by our colleagues, Kate Kelly and Robin Pogrebin. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I haven't gotten a look at it yet. But I think what we're seeing is that that is just one of the most endlessly controversial stories uh, of our time. And part of why we wanted to write in detail about Christine Blasey Ford's experience is that there was so much political controversy that it's almost like this one woman's particular journey through the political system, her decisions about whether to tell her story and how, I think almost got lost a little bit. You talk about um, sweeping away the old rules without knowing what the new rules are. Um, I think what men would probably like to know from you is, how far back do you go? How far back is it fair to go when uh, reassessing what happened? You're asking a great question. I, I mean, in our reporting, what we see is that there are basically three questions about Me Too that have not been answered. And number one is, what kinds of behaviors are under scrutiny? And I would include in that question your question, which is, how far back are we going here? Um, And also, are we only talking about serious assault allegations, or are we also talking about, say, bad dates? Um, Number two, how do we decide what really happened? What are the tools we're using to figure out which information is correct? And then number three, how does accountability and punishment work? And all three of those questions are controversial, and they tend to get very mixed up, very intertwined. And so I think that's part of That's part of what makes some of these discussions just feel like a huge fireball of controversy because we're dealing with several difficult questions at once. But for people who find themselves in this situation, um, based on on the rules that you follow for what to publish and what not to publish, if somebody is thinking about coming forward with a story, 
How would you advise them to document it, given that many of these things happen in private? That's a really interesting question. I mean, our perspective as reporters is we do look for a lot of documentation because the rule in journalism is, Megan's old editor had a sign on his desk that said this, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. And also, if a woman is going to come forward in our pages about something difficult, we want to make sure that we've found as much evidence as possible about what happened so we can give context to what she's saying. So we look for everything. We look for old diary notes. We look at old meeting calendars. We especially look for anybody she may have told at the time or shortly afterwards. We look for corporate memos, for settlements, for a legal and financial trail around what happened. We look for really any kind of evidence we can find. So uh, that's the key. Document it when it happens. Write something down. Take a picture. Well, not, tell somebody. Not everybody. Not everybody does. I mean, I, I I don't know that I would necessarily fault you know a, a 16 year old who finds herself in that situation and doesn't know to write everything down. And there are many people who keep these experiences private, as you know, and are very afraid or very ashamed uh, to tell anybody. But I'm just saying that in the journalism, we try as hard as possible to 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 get as much context and as much documentation as possible because that creates a situation that's, that's more powerful and fair for everybody. Jody Cantor, the author of the co-author with Megan Tuohy of She Said. Jody, thanks very much. Thank you. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast and you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 